to the moon and let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. All right. Well, if you've been watching Squid Game, you have a completely different relationship with that song than you used to have. Uh, and Squid Game, which is uh, currently the biggest Netflix hit. Possibly, maybe, ever. It's sort of hard to tell. Uh, 111 viewers, something like 111 million viewers, excuse me. Uh, I think it's the biggest Netflix hit in 90 different countries. Uh, It doesn't mean you've watched it, but uh, if you have anyway, you know that anything, including that very lovely jazz standard, can be perverted and twisted around into a commentary on the futility of human endeavor or something like that. Joining us to explain this far more coherently than I am doing right now are our two panelists on the nose today. Tanisha Dugan is director, producer, and arts consultant. Rebecca Castellani is the co-founder of Quiet Quarter, uh, the co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications, and a freelance writer. We have been watching Squid Game. Uh, it is an enormous hit. I will quickly attempt to summarize it. Well, I'll use Netflix's own summary. A mysterious invitation to join the game is sent to people at risk who are in dire need of money. 456 participants from all walks of life are locked into a secret location where they play the games in order to win 45.6 billion won. Uh, Every game is a Korean traditional children's game, such as Red Light, Green Light, but the consequence of losing is death. Who will be the winner? What is the purpose behind this game? Some of this we will not be telling you, uh, but some of it we will. So, um... I don't know. I don't even even know exactly how to begin. So I'll begin in my usual sort of formless, blundering way. Um, so Tanisha, uh, you know, first of all, are you finding this show as gripping as apparently a huge portion of humankind is? I am not. <laughs> uh, I, you know, this show had been sort of playing in, as like the wallpaper to my life for the past couple of weeks because every really male identifying person in my house had like found out about squid game and and not at the same time so they were watching it kind of like in a domino fashion um so i actually was like eager to be like what is what is everyone watching um and then i did and i was like oh i wish bridgerton had held on to that title of most watched show on netflix um while i i think i really dig what uh, is happening in South Korean cinema and television right now. And it did sort of pique my interest. And I was checking out a New Yorker magazine and there's like a laundry list, I think, of other uh, Korean films and and television shows that I want to check out now. This one didn't quite hit hit the go button for me. Um, and you know, and I also sort of wonder about that sometimes whether because, yeah, Squid Game has kind of moved into the conversation to a point where last week on Saturday Night Live, there were inevitable Squid Game jokes. Uh, actually, on Sunday, of all things, the uh, Fox Sports NFL pregame noon show had a comedy segment based on Squid Game in which it was all kind of transferred over into NFL dramas. I mean, just Squid Game is kind of everywhere, Tanisha. And I, I remember I waited too long to see the movie once. 
And everybody was just getting really excited about it once. You know, that's the sort of the two musicians in, in Dublin or wherever they are. Uh, and by the time I watched it, I went, this? This is what you're so excited about? <laughs> We're in about? solidarity over once as well. <laughs> but sometimes you just wait too long, I think, you know, and, and, and it can never measure up. Uh, now, Rebecca, I know you went, you, you went in the immersion tank on this one, right? As I want to do, yes. I uh, binged the whole thing over the weekend. And unlike Tanisha, I was transfixed. I really, really liked it. I think it, it's helpful when something is not in English because I tend to pay more attention than when I've been asked, you know, formally to watch shows for this show. I will sometimes just put it out of the background and like pay less attention than I probably should be. So I was very captivated and also generally paying more attention than I typically do to television shows. And I thought it was great. I thought the performances were great. I loved the set design. I loved the sound choices. Um, I, this is also very much in my wheelhouse of things I like. Like I really go for dark, dystopia, violent, twisted things. So I, I think this was really like absolutely targeted towards my interests. So I, uh, I really loved it. I responded very positively to it. Yeah, and I think I'm somewhere in the middle right now. Uh, I'm not all the way through it yet. I've been watching it with my son when I get together with him. So it's kind of a nice little bonding experience for us. Um, and and I, I do think that there are some things that are that are that can recommend it, you know. And and I do. I mean, Tanisha, we we had a little conversation in our emails about whether it has any meaningful relationship to Parasite, which might be the other mm. uh, piece of South Korean uh, filmmaking or television making people are most recently familiar with. And to me, it did. One of the things that Parasite helped me understand and go do more reading about is that the kinds of uh, economic uh, inequalities that were very familiar with here in the United States are, if anything, exacerbated in, in, in terms of tiers of have-nots and haves uh, in, in South Korea. And to me, the economic desperation, I mean, one thing that we can kind of tell you without spoiling anything is once they've discovered in the first episode that this game is very, very sinister and, and you know, that elimination in this game is a literal truth, in the second episode, they're, most of them are returned to their lives in Seoul and other North North Korean cities, and most of them elect to go back. Uh, mm -hmm. And somehow or other, that doesn't seem completely crazy. <laughs> and, and some of it is just because of the incredible economic desperation that we see. So I don't know whether this is a piece of escape is fair, Tanisha, that I'm, I'm, I'm plastering too many interpretations on top of, or, or whether that actually is. I know that North Korea has, has condemned it or said, this shows you why capitalism doesn't work. Squid Game, that, that's yes. North Korean's take on that. But I don't know, where did you wind up on that? I mean, I think you're, I think you're probably right. And I think that's probably why I'm turned off by it. Um, and I, and I do think that there are some parallels in terms of themes and conversation that uh, Parasite and Squid Game are, are attempting. And I will go back and agree with Rebecca that I think design wise, I mean, it's wonderful. And I think that's also just a part of the aesthetic of South Korean film. I have yet to see something yeah. that's not visually specific and Agreed. and purposeful and beautiful. Um, but I think I think you're right. I think you know this this project gets at uh, inequity and the ways in which we are navigating inequity in a very visceral and brutal way. Um, and maybe my uh, <laughs> subconscious protection is is saying, ooh, this is really close. Um, what, is it, mm. what does it mean if all of this is entertainment for the rich? I don't think that's a spoiler. Um, 
I should have advanced that with the spoiler. <laughs> but I but but I think that that's that's the sort of question for me and, and is the desperation of the working class of the indebted. Um, is is that entertainment and is there enough for me as a viewer is, there's not quite enough education or mm. redemption in it um, for it to to keep me to keep me going because it, while it's beautiful it is brutal. It is brutal. But I think that's the point, right? Like you don't get redemption in capitalism. The wheel keeps on turning. We continue to use the lower classes as fodder for the richest entertainment. Like I, I think that brutal, uncompromising portrayal of life is is the point of the show. And that's hard to watch and hard to swallow, but I, I think it's reality. I think also it's interesting. I mean, I mean, I may be forcing a, a Papulian through line here that where <laughs> there isn't one. But our, our second topic today, which we uh, later in the show, we're going to be talking about the now kind of notorious bad art friend uh, essay in or article in the New York Times uh, and, and all of the fallout from that. And it, of course, is kind of a meditation, as the title would suggest, on the nature of friendship. And one of the things this thing seems to be about is you know, how how we forge alliances to get through things and, and, uh. and whether those alliances work and who's trustworthy and who's not. One of the things that I have kind of liked this could be this is my birthday today, so I, I think maybe oh. I'm, I'm having uh, happy birthday, well, yeah. happy birthday! birthday. Uh, wow! And and well, as as you get older, you notice more about how old people are <laughs> are portrayed on <laughs> things. And so there's this grizzled old guy uh, whose name is uh, Oh Young Su, uh, and um, and and you know I mean, he's a little bit out of it. He, maybe he's a lot out of it, but he's also <laughs> treated as kind of a source of wisdom. And there's that kind of Asian thing of the veneration of older people and people take care of him. But they also listen to him because he actually has some pretty important things to say. And, and you know, there are a lot of other examples of that, um, Tanisha, where the relationships within this completely bizarre and for the most part kind of artificial seeming environment, uh, you know, still kind of devolve to the human relationships we need to get through life. It's true. And I and I think the commentary on the relationships as you get through the rest of the the season. Yes, season. Um, tells a story of may, perhaps not the best of humanity, although I will say the lead character as sort of um, fumbling as he is to me is actually quite redeeming and charming. Um, and I and. I am grateful for at least one character that sort of holds on to some kind of um, central uh, humane force within the within the entire project. But I think you're right. I think you know it is a story about relationships and how we use them, leverage them, uh, deny them, um, and it is a quite apt Papulian thread to uh, our next conversation, um, because I think that's, I think if anything, that may be the thing that's making people watch, right? As it, it sort of helps you metabolize these transactional relationships we're all in, in addition to the ones that aren't so transactional, that are actually relational and the sort of osmosis between those two things mm. as it relates to human relationships. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, why is this thing a hit in 90 countries? I mean, well, first of all, I think they've marketed it very effectively. Uh, but also, Rebecca, there is that sense that a lot of these stories, they're kind of familiar story, stories, a lot of the characters. I mean, there's a gang of kind of brutish, hedonist bullies uh, who, you know, they're sort of very familiar, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that you can sort of watch and go, oh, well, yes, I am not trapped in a South Korean dystopian reality uh, in which uh, I'm very likely to be murdered and then put in a very lovely gift box looking thing and stuck into a crematorium. Uh, That doesn't happen to be what's happening to me right now, but I get it, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think these are archetypes that we can identify in all of our human lives. And I think, unfortunately, that's where some of the translation issues came into play. As I've learned more about some of the shortcomings of the English subtitles, you get kind of a richer picture. And I think that the portrayal of these characters. For example, um, Mina, the kind of unhinged lady who's playing everyone off of each other, there's a line where she talks about how she is smart. um, But I guess in the translation, it's that she's smart but didn't get the opportunity to go to school. And that's apparently like a big trope in South Korea, people that are very intelligent but don't actually have the ability to afford an education. So there's little things like that that I think make it richer that I wish that I had seen. And I think that would allow us to identify even more of these archetypes that are already at play and kind of set it more in our personal lives. But yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that that, that's what made it so accessible for me is that, oh, I know these characters. I might not know their names. I might not recognize their specific economic disparity as it pertains to Korean culture, but I know who these people are. Yeah, I mean, oh, you watched it in cool. subtitles. I'm curious, Colin, did you watch it in subtitles or English dub? I watched it. Well, I can't. I, we started out with just it, it defaulted to dub. I don't like dubbing unless Ooh. it's done really, really well. I didn't think it was done particularly well here. Now, one thing that we learned about a little bit this week is the difference between subtitles and closed caption. I think I've been watching closed caption, which we're now being told is not as accurate a translation as you get from subtitles. Some of the closed caption, I think, is almost kind of robotically generated. So, um, so yeah, it's like, so yeah, I'd be interested to know for both of you, Tanisha, uh, how about you? I, I did both. It depends on... <laughs> whether or not I was in mixed company. Mm. Um, And I think um, the dubbing episodes that I watched were were less satisfying. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think exactly for what you said, Colin, that that it's just not done very well. So you feel like you're kind of watching anime, like live action anime. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think the episodes where I I listened to it in its natural language um, just lifted for me differently because I wasn't watching physical acting juxtaposed with English dubbing and it which then became a different show altogether Um, but I am curious how American audiences are are consuming it because I think there is a difference between watching it dubbed and watching it um, in subtitles I mean things things that are not dubbed well and that's most things particularly things that are dubbed into English for this country uh, tend not to be dubbed well and my understanding is that in uh, European television and movies the dubbing is done better there are people yeah. who actually become kind of famous uh, they are become dubbing celebrities because they're so good at doing Harrison Ford or whatever it is that they're doing um, so yeah I, I mean I, it's usually a bad choice here to do that uh, you know, Rebecca what did what did you do how did you handle this I started off with the dubbing and immediately hated it. It was very distracting and I didn't think the act, the voice acting was very good. So I switched to subtitles and did that for the rest of my watch. Um, 
And I think the subtitles were the superior choice there, but I also think that from what I've read, the subtitles did not do a great job of capturing the actual dialogue, which I think is a bummer. And I, I was also reading that other uh, subtitles, like the Spanish subtitles are apparently more accurate. Hmm. So it really was a consequence of the English subtitles that I think were problematic. And I really have never wanted to learn Korean more so I could go back and watch this and really <laughs> capture everything. That, yes, that'll be a very peculiar incentive for people who want to leave, uh, yes. learn Korean so they really get Squid Game. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. What's kind yeah. of cool about what you've offered in, before we sort of move on to a different layer of this conversation, but what's interesting to me about what you've offered, Rebecca, is this idea that like culture is specific to its language mm. and that like translation while workable for like the macro storytelling when it comes to the nuance of what something is trying to get across hearing it in its native tongue is probably, to use your word, the superior way of, of, of getting into it. Yeah. Um, and I, and I it, as a culture maker, that's really curious to me because I'm like, well, so does it mean, could there ever be a world culture? Could there? Or, or is the specificity and locality of culture necessary for it to really have its effect? It's a really yeah. great question. Um, I mean, I I think we all acknowledge that there are words in most languages that are not easily translatable into mm-hmm. other, other languages, and I, but that's I think a problem uh, right here too. That um, you know, there there's just sort of things that the different cultures talk about that have words for that are are not. The, and and I also think the Esperanto film movement, you know, just never really took off. So um, so yeah, Rebecca. I mean, I think Tanisha raises a great uh, uh, question: Can we have global cinema and global streaming uh, or, you know, is it sort of doomed a little bit? It's doomed maybe not to reach 100% of its goal. Sure. But I think to try and to accept this culture and then like do the research and do the background, like I've spent all week learning about Korean society that I, lots of things I didn't know before watching this. And if a television show can encourage you to learn more about the world we live in. Like, I think that's a really positive thing. And if it's just the springboard that gets you there, why not? I mean, my favorite example of how specific I think this show is to Korean culture and where the translation missed is in one of the games, they play marbles. And the older man says, uh, he's his gangaboo, which in the subtitles translated to, we share everything. Whereas in the Korean, it's, there is no ownership between us. Mm. Mm. And that that is such a critical difference and absolutely changes the whole structure of that episode. And I, I was devastated to learn that I'd missed that. But then I was like, wow, how interesting that that's the term. And then I started kind of investigating the term. So I think however you come to it, there is some external work you need to do to fully understand the story. And that might not be for everyone. For, but for me, I like nothing more than a show that makes me want to go research. I mean, the the thing that compensates, I think, is, you know, uh, as both of you said at the beginning of the conversation, there's something so visually compelling about this that, that, that can pull it out of language at times. And that visual component ranges from, yes, these, you know, sort of multicolored Sesame Street Escher staircases you know, so good. Uh, that, that somehow or other exist in a world where you can all sort of see behind the scenes that this is this kind of crappy facility that has mm-hmm. a couple of kind of like, you know, very cool looking things in it. Um, obviously, the uniforms and costumes and these kind of magenta colored uh, guards. Uh, who's, the who's, haunting doll. You know, the, the haunting doll. Uh, and you know, I think also one of the things that, that helps this series a lot is a, a, a number of these actors 
are really impressive face actors. I mean, starting mm-hmm. with Lee, Lee Jung Jai, who plays uh, the nominal protagonist here, uh, Ji Hun. Uh, he's this down on his luck, really degenerate gambler who turns out to have other kinds of positive qualities about him. But but really, you know, a lot of these characters, a lot of these actors act so well, Tanisha, with their faces that, you know, maybe maybe we're missing a word or two, but somehow or other, you know, there's other ways that actors communicate. Uh, you as uh, as a director would know that better than anybody. I think that's the, I think that's the thing that uh, didn't quite work for me because um, they are such such face actors and I was like oh I wonder if that's the aesthetic of Korean acting um, because American acting asks for something subtler I think yeah um, and and so I kept watching them work and going I don't know I don't know <laughs> um, and I think I think you're right Rebecca that there's there's a curiosity that wasn't quite awakened in me but in talking to you I'm like oh I should learn more about the aesthetic of of acting right in that in South Korea um which apparently is is very close to North Korea like apparently they were once <laughs> one country yeah. so I heard um but I think but but I think there's there are a lot of sort of new things um to learn and yes Colin the um, amount of sort of physical acting that the actors are doing allows you to sort of get the gist of the story without actually understanding um, word for word what, what is being said. All right. We have to take a break here. It's Squid Game. Uh, either watch it or take the ri- risk of not getting a lot of jokes or understanding people's Halloween costumes <laughs> when they come to your door. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the choice is yours. We have to take a quick break here. And so people are going to ask you to support this program and this station and the whole concept of public broadcasting. Please do it. Please uh, do it during our hour. It helps us. It's the last day of the pledge campaign. Campaign. Poor cat pastor is so exhausted. So please, uh, this is your last chance to support us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org slash WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. 
We are back. I hope you did uh, pledge to support uh, the show and the station. Meanwhile, we're about to take another deep dive uh, into something which yeah, conceivably is kind of related to some of the questions raised in, in Squid Game, but it's written in a very different way. Uh, this is uh, an essay called Who is the Bad Art Friend? I, I think it's an essay. It's an essay, a reported essay, a feature article maybe. Who is the uh, the bad art friend? Art often draws inspiration from life, but what happens when it's your life? Inside the curious case of Don Dorlin versus Sonia Larson, this is a story which has spanned many, many years at this point. Uh, you know, there's an old saying about, oh, which we brought up, I think, in connection with the the series, The Bridge, The Chair, excuse me, The Chair, which uh, it was, you know, why are academic battles uh, so vicious because the stakes are so low? Well, the stakes are even lower <laughs> in the world of short story writers, you know, I mean, uh, but two short story writers, Don Dorland and Sonia Larson, uh, have had a long running battle, which is a very difficult uh, thing to explain. Uh, but uh, actually, Lily Tyson, uh, the producer of this episode, who, by the way, I think partly because she's still trying to be at graduate school, bright at the fact that this is a 10,000-word piece about this <laughs> uh, this odd little feud. Uh, but uh, Don Dorlin, one of the writers, donated a kidney and a, uh, a kidney and a non-directed donation uh, and set up a, a private face group to talk about herself and her kidney uh, that she donated. Uh, and it was a group of writers that she knew, including one named Sonia Larson. Uh, and Sonia in a way that was unsatisfying to Don, didn't comment at all or say anything about the kidney donation until Don asked, asked her. Uh, and it, it later turned out that Sonia was working uh, on a short story uh, called uh, about a kidney donation recipient uh, and and a kidney donor who had some of the neediness and an aggressive uh, desire for validation that that her, her quote unquote friend Don Dorlin uh, seemed to have, uh, and things kind of uh, spiraled from there. Uh, Don wound up feeling very betrayed by this. Uh, they sort of tried to resolve it with some back and forth conversations. Those didn't work. There were a lot of other third parties jumping in and saying, guess what Sonia's doing now? Uh, uh, then it wound up uh, with, you know, thousands of pages of discovery with multiple lawsuits. <laughs> All about this short story, which I can guarantee you is not. Well, now it'll probably be made into a movie, but uh, uh -huh. <laughs> but it was it was not uh, going to, you know, justify the amount of, of fuss that was made about it. So. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Rebecca, get us going here. Um, this seemed like an awful lot of sound and fury about not much, except that maybe like Squid Game also, we're, we're finding some universal themes in all this. Because this has turned into a viral Internet thing where, you know, vast analyses are being done, uh, not unlike the short story cat person. Yeah. No, this is high art. Like this. It doesn't get better than this. Like, I can't believe. I actually, I finally read it this morning because I had read all of these supplementary articles and I'm stuck behind the New York Times paywall. So I finally figured out if I used my iPad, I could get into it. But it, this was everywhere. It was on Reddit everywhere. All my news feeds had, are you the bad art friend? Are we all the bad art friend? Th thought pieces going on. So I was so intrigued by this. And I finally read it this morning, all 10,000 words. And I was like, this is glorious. This is what pop culture has been building towards. The stakes are the floor. It couldn't be lower. These two women are just equally insufferable and have committed various crimes against each other. But the fact that like we as a civilization are so hungry for gossip and tea, but we're also so burnt out of high stakes drama, whether it's a pandemic or an election, that when we have these little moments of low stakes drama, it's like 
the best thing ever. Like everybody wants to get involved. It's cathartic. It has people talking, but like not about like big world issues that stress us out. It's like nobody's actually losing sleep over the squabbles between these two women, but we're all talking about it and thinking about it and unpacking these deep questions, these existential questions of friendship. I mean, that's art, baby. Like that's what it's designed to do. I think it's brilliant. You know, I probably shouldn't read aloud from the emails that we share back and forth because this is all about talking. But sometimes Tanisha just puts something so marvelously. She says <laughs> it's a, it's a way to metabolize. It's <laughs> a way to metabolize how living together in America today works: fragility, ownership, martyrdom, respect, recognition, and so on. Uh, and when you put it that way, Tanisha, these are big themes. You know, I mean, the stakes may be low, but the themes are big. Yeah, I mean, I think, Rebecca, you nailed it, right? Like, because the the actual incident is low stake, there's an opportunity to have kind of high stake conversations without any skin in the game, Mm -hmm. which I think is really, really great. I mean, I laughed just by the title when you were like, let's, let's, let's read the bad friend article, bad art friend article. And I was like, oh my God, totally bad art friend. And then I read it and I was like, oh crap, maybe I should walk myself so strongly in that direction. And yet, right, art is absolutely a, a, a collaboration, right? I mean, yeah. my favorite thing that people say is like, when musicians say, well, there's only 88 keys, right? Yeah. So there's only so many uh, sounds in the Western musical canon and let's be clear uh, there's only so many sounds that can be made and so you know this story hits on all of those things it is I'm sure there's a group of feminists somewhere who are going to be annoyed with me but it is kind of an old-fashioned girl fight yes um, which is just delicious to watch and and not like a real housewives sort of over-the-top girl fight but like really true like are we friends? Are we not friends? How do you treat me? Oh, you don't treat me well. Um, it just it just kind of hits all the things. And and this this woman with the kidney. I mean, we don't we didn't even really get into it, right? But just the choice to be like, I'm gonna give up part of my body to anybody. Just gonna like is in and of itself a strange thing. I mean, maybe I'm alone in feeling that way, but it's just an odd thing to do. It feels very, I mean, I don't think it gets any more performative than that. Stranger Um, still to email someone being like, how come you haven't engaged in my private Facebook group about my kidney donation? Like, what? Exactly. And the private Facebook group that is, it seems, to be curated towards a group of people she really wants to impress. Yes. Just also like, Oh, very fascinating. I, I This article, all 10,000 words of it, is worth a Sunday afternoon cup of coffee tea situation yep. because it's hilarious. Yeah, I, I almost, you guys are doing such a great job. I feel like I should just step back and let the two of you keep talking. I'm really enjoying this. I, I do think that, yes, you know, she sort of violates Don Dorland, the, uh, the kidney donor, kind of violates, I think it's Maimonides who says that the highest form of charity is the charity that nobody knows about, you know, something that you do that, you know, you don't ever seek or get credit for. You know, she's kind of the opposite. I mean, this this kidney donation is only meaningful to her. It seems anyway, in terms of the amount of validation it attracts, it really is maybe the most organic, literally organic form of virtue signaling I've ever seen in my life. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like, let's talk about me. Uh, and and yet, I don't know. I'm To me, Rebecca, the word 
first of all, bad art friend is such a weird phrase. I don't, I don't know. Yes. I, I've never heard that phrase before. I, I, don't, I, I, I think it's Sonia Larson, the person who writes the story about the other writer who says, I think at one point in the essay, I, maybe, maybe I, is she saying I'm a bad art friend? I thought, what the hell is that? But, <laughs> but and, and I guess I, I'd like to ask both of you about that. Is there – I mean, so much of this, I think, is also about what is friendship. And when we are spending so much time in virtual contact with one another, in digital contact with one another, and not seeing, smelling, hearing, you know, each other in the ways that you understand who your friends are in this kind of, you know, much more pheromone-driven way. Um, Maybe it is a little bit about that question, too. It's like, you know— Ordinarily, animals are always sniffing each other's butts and stuff like that, but you can't do that online. You can't really figure out where you stand with somebody. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. The, I don't know how that's a question. anxiety I had about the idea that all these people had a group text about this one woman and all this woman wants is the validation of those specific people like sent me into an absolute panic spiral. Like, are there group texts about me? But I also feel like it's it's a it's a testament to how awful writers are too. Like the idea of these writing groups that are just so catty, like, oh God, it's just, it's wonderful. Like it's a car crash you can't look away from, but cringy. Like the whole thing just beginning to end had me cringing. You know, I I think part of it for people who aren't a part of writers groups, I've I've done a number of um, directing projects within writers, like retreats. I've learned that like by virtue of the the feedback that is encouraged around people's work, a culture of cattiness just mm-hmm. comes out because I think yep. it it's both protective, you know, around a really delicate situation, which is like critique my work so that I can improve. Um, but for me, like bad art friend is also like, where do you put the emphasis? Is it bad art friend <laughs> or bad art friend right? like, and some of this is like you know and I think there's a, a bit of genius in the double entendre as it relates to this article because you know I think you, you kind of you circled around this Colin right the the short story is kind of bad art too yeah um and then the question of like are these women actually friends um and then what does it mean to be a bad art friend right like can you be in a group text about a single person in your art collective and be a good art friend you know can you give real meaningful critique like hey you literally stole my facebook post (laughs) (laughs) and still be considered a friend and are you a friend if you go yeah I totally did it's not going anywhere or no I totally did not what are you talking about girl um I think there's you know I think there's two parts of this that are being played out and the part that I think I'm most interested in is like the bad art friend you know because because making art is a collective Mm -hmm. activity because ideas are not are most often not a single source, right? So how do we protect each other and ourselves individually within the question around ownership and still be good friends to each other while making good art, you know? I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things to unpack here. Uh, and I do feel as though, once again, the, the to make a Papoulian jump back to Squid Game, this is about people fighting over scraps in some ways. You right. know, yep. I mean, this isn't a, a fight between, you know, Annie Dillard and John Updike. You know, this, is, <laughs> this is a fight between, you know, and, and I've sort of, I don't know. I mean, I think these writers groups are, as you say, they are a little bit Squid Game-like. You know, some of us are going to survive and some of us are going to perish. And I want to make sure I'm in the former group. Um, I think as your career goes on, again, I'm pretty old here. I don't know. I don't see writers. If you've been published a few times and stuff like that, I don't. Writers get a lot less vicious, I think, under those circumstances. I think part of the problem is, you know, the the career itself. It's really much harder these days to be. You know the the next, you know, uh, Laurie Moore or or whoever. Uh, I just don't think the money's there that there used to be and everything. So what are you fighting over at this point? Well, it's these other slights and stuff like that. So well, ironically, I think all of this scandal is going to be the best thing that happened to either one of these women's careers. Right. Like everyone is talking about them. Nobody knew who Don Dorland or Sonia <laughs> Larson was last week, but now it's like you type D into Google and the first thing that comes up is Don Dorland. It's like right. good for you, girl. <laughs> yeah, and everybody's either team Don or team Sonia yeah. or team uh, as team Tisa. neither. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. they're both oh, they're both bad. Right. Uh, I a, a couple of interesting pieces about it. Katie Waldman writing in the New Yorker actually spent some time on the short story itself and says it's not a good short story, uh, but yeah. she makes some other interesting points about this. I think the most comprehensive and maybe a little bit easier to read uh, piece uh, as opposed to the New York Times is by a guy named Michael Hobbs, I think. He has a blog called Rotten in Denmark. Uh, and it's uh, the title of the piece is Identifying the Bad Art Friend is Easy. Uh, and to me, that this was sort of a good explainer. that Because Kolker, the guy who wrote the New York Times piece, he kind of tells it out of sequence a little bit. And, uh, it's long and kind of hard to work the whole thing out. Um, He's apparently a true crime writer, which makes a lot more sense <laughs> with the way he laid it out. Right. So. Well, so, Rebecca, I'm amazed that the Big Little Podcast hasn't pounced on this. Oh, uh, trust me. For I'll season eight or whatever it's going to be is, uh, is you know, instead of re- uh, talking about TV shows, this is it. This is like, you know, as you said. That's going to be the most meta season of Big Little Podcast ever. Right. The I'm moment you guys were made for. Okay. We got to go to break right here. I'm with uh, Tanisha Dugan and Rebecca Castellani. We'll come back. We'll make some recommendations to you. We are back. This is The Nose. Uh, and uh, we are fortunate to have us with us today, today Tanisha Dugan uh, and Rebecca Castellani as our panelists. Kat Pastor is the technical producer here. She is my hero this week. She has worked so hard during this pledge drive uh, to keep things going. And uh, we would be lost without her. And she desperately, desperately needs a cat nap. Uh, and so uh, presumably <laughs> she's going to get one this afternoon. And meanwhile, Lily Tyson, the newly crowned senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, produced this episode. Uh, thanks to you, Lily, and now Tanisha. Uh, and Rebecca, I'm going to make some recommendations uh, to you. Tanisha, what have you got for us this week? So I'm going to do something that's like semi-political, which is not usually my bent, but you know, <laughs> it's it's crazy times out here. So I'm actually going to endorse unions. Oh, I'm going to endorse, especially coming out of a, a show like Squid Games and probably the article about those two writers, having a group of people 
working collectively towards the greater good is a good thing. Um, and so I'm going to endorse my friends in IATSE who are fighting a big fight right now. But, um, but I'm going to endorse unions across the board. Um, thank you for 40 hour work weeks and weekends. And um, there's more work to be done. So uh, I hope, hope we see more of you in the coming uh, future. Uh, and I'm going to endorse the Smith, which is a restaurant across the street from Lincoln Center. I've been spending a lot of time there the past uh, two months. Uh, and I've watched that neighborhood go from no Lincoln Center operating to Lincoln Center creakingly reopening um, and to have a restaurant like the Smith that um, has been a place to go to, um, vaccinated and all, um, has been really lovely. It sort of hearkened me back to times when one would go eat a meal and see some art. Um, and while I don't think we're back, I think we're finding our way back. And so um, endorsing the Smith and the folks who give us uh, behind the scenes work that we may not always see. Yeah, that's good. That's a great endorsement. Uh, and how about you, Rebecca? What have you got to recommend to us? Uh, so I actually just thought of this as we were talking about Bad Art Friend, but there is a fantastic dark book I read this summer called Bunny by a writer named Mona Awad. I, I, read, it, I read it too, by the way. Go you ahead. did? Yeah. I loved it. And it deals with a writer's group, a very dark writer's group. They all call each other Bunny. But it's uh, if you've been, like I have, immersed in the Bad Art Friend cinematic universe, this belongs in that conversation. And my other endorsement is I just started watching for the first time Sex Education on Netflix, and it is absolutely fantastic. Jillian Anderson is my queen. It is just funny intelligent, well-written. The costumes are fantastic. It's it's just a really, really great series. And if you've got young people in your life that have questions about sex, it's a great resource. All right. I'll add a thumbs up to that one, too. All right. I, I, haven't, I haven't tackled it yet. So um, I, I'm going to recommend kind of um, – well, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is recommend on HBO Max, uh, if you scroll down, they don't really feature it up very much, but they have a whole separate TCM, uh, Turner Classic Movie, kind of sub-channel uh, there. And, and a lot of what they think of as a classic doesn't really strike me as, as a classic either because of its <laughs> recency or quality. But um, picking out maybe, you know, some – I've got somebody um, uh, who has returned to my life from a long – Ten and a half month medical odyssey, and she's home with me, uh, and but also needs things to kind of distract her right now. And so, uh, yesterday, or I guess it was two days ago, I set up a, a comedy. The kind of troika starting uh, with Best in Show, uh, and oh, so and good. then moving to Bowfinger, uh, which uh, which is a very overlooked uh, Steve Martin comedy with an incredible double performance by Eddie Murphy. Murphy, if you've never seen this movie, I- I'm amazed it's not on everybody's top ten lists. Uh, and and then ending with Heaven Can Wait, which is wonderful. But you know, check out the check out the menu there and pick some wonderful things to watch and sit down with somebody you love and, and do that. Uh, and meanwhile, thanks so much to Re- Rebecca Castellani. Uh, and to Tanisha Dugan and to everybody else who helped out with the show. Now, when people ask you to pledge, please do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington. Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, yeah. Alderbury, Woodbury, 
getting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.